0: This is Dan Clifton, and you're listening to The Mercenary Podcast. This week, we're joined by Chris Sparling to discuss all things screenwriting, the subtle genius of ancient aliens, and Chris's new movie, The Atticus Institute. All right, cool. This is Dan Clifton. I'm here with Matt Monahan and Chris Sparling. Uh, welcome to Episode 7 of The Mercenary Podcast. Chris is the writer of uh, Buried, ATM... And is now the writer and director of the Atticus Institute, which is out on iTunes and will be out on in a myriad of somewhat confusing film windowing, but will be out on uh, VOD, DVD, and Blu-ray January twentieth. So, welcome to the podcast,
1: Chris. Thank
2: you, guys. Yeah, I saw an early cut. It was it was pretty scary. Had no no special effects. (laughs) (laughs) Does it now? (laughs)
0: yeah it's like how much has it really changed no uh well there'd be like a word on the screen that's like exploded something (laughs) that's right yeah well well it's not you know let's not give anything away here matt but uh (laughs) uh uh yeah so matt always checks out early versions of stuff and uh and says really helpful stuff like uh i don't get it or uh or does it work for me or um or uh not enough hot, hot chicks in it, but, you know, which is really a catch-all <laughs> yeah. for, you know, which really does help you um, refine the movie-making process. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I mean, the, the bluntness, it's, uh, you're a rare breed, you know, that <laughs> you, you be that blunt.
0: Man, have you ever actually been
2: to a real, like, testing? You even been oh, to like, no. a real screening? I'm assuming yeah, it's you- like a regular movie. They just give you a little card at the end. You have
0: to fill yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> You're more okay. of a watch, a watch a link on Vimeo and uh, and give notes like three months later kind of guy. That's more. Yeah, of your... like the
2: movie's completely made. There's there's no way any of my <laughs> suggestions could possibly be be taken into account. Um, but uh, anyway, so I've
0: known Chris uh, for a while. I, I did not work uh, on Buried, though I work with the producer of Buried, uh, Peter Saffron a lot. Um, but I first worked with Chris on ATM film that came out in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, Matt might ask you what... It's like the person... Uh, you probably hate this question, but it's like the person who would look at your IMDb, and I always say IMDb is an awful way of looking at uh, at credits and future stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but somebody who would look at your IMDb, be, maybe <clears throat> before Atticus and maybe before some of your more recent uh, stuff that hasn't come out, would be like, so Chris Sparling, he likes to paint himself into a corner. He likes... He likes confined spaces Uh, because you're you're, – not your first movie, but – because I think you made – obviously you had done a few shorts and and some other stuff. But Mm -hmm. Buried was featured Ryan Reynolds uh, in a coffin, Buried Alive. Yep. And uh, ATM uh, featured three office co-workers trapped in an ATM vestibule. Yes. Um, So we've talked a little bit about this, but I think originally when you wanted to have the idea for Buried – um, you wanted to make it as something that you could possibly star in as an actor, or something that you could actually make. You're like, how can I make a? How can I write a movie that I can actually make? Right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it is, was more. I'm sorry, God.
0: No, which is revolutionary in its simplicity, but is is pretty. But that's. A, I feel like more people should have that thought process.
1: <clears throat> well, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was. It was certainly that. It was not this time around uh, me thinking about something for me to be in. That was something in the past. <clears throat> Excuse me. I had done, and not to say that I wouldn't want to do it again in the future, if possible. But at that time, it was it was all about just getting a movie made. Uh, so the plan was for me to direct it, produce it, uh, obviously write it, and and to do it for pretty much about five grand. That was the initial initial intent with buried. So I kind of I kind of started from that figure and backed into it, and just said, "Well, what movie can I make for five grand?" You know, and I, I made the conscious decision at that point anyway for that film. That I didn't want to do uh, a found footage movie and, and that's not necessarily to say that a found footage movie can be made for five grand or not but I just decided I didn't want to do that so I kind of I had to think small I had to just reduce the number of locations the number of actors and, and everything else that would cost me money and it pretty much just left me with a guy alone in a box for 90 minutes and, and so that's, that's how I arrived at it honestly.
0: I think if you reduce the amount of people uh, further, you 'd be making an animated movie because i don 't I don't think you can get more <laughs> more, more simple in, uh, in production constraints than one guy in a box until you realize that actually shooting that is very right. difficult.
1: Yeah, it was that was there was no easy easy task. I mean, I, I didn't end up directing it. Thankfully, <laughs> and, and I underlined that word. Thankfully, it became a much bigger uh, thing than my five thousand dollar movie. But uh, so Rodrigo Cortez ended up directing it, and uh, you know, he just he just just took took it to new heights. And it was it was it was amazing to watch him do that. I mean, it was it was one thing to visualize, like I said, my five thousand dollar version of it. But once you saw this 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 film, the story have you know a more substantial budget and have a and have a more experienced cast behind it and then obviously having an actor like ryan in it you you saw that it became you know i hate to say it but it became a real movie
0: right so what do you think now um well obviously you you wrote atm which uh, david brooks directed which i was a producer on um and now you've uh you've directed your first film yeah uh, the atticus institute which has come out recently and, and you've we were talking the other day about um, the separation. Where when you when you've written something but you haven't directed it, maybe there's a little more separation. But now you're like, as the writer and the director, you almost feel like it's always a collaborative process. But now you're like, wow, this is <laughs> this is my movie. It's come out. I hope people like it. Has it been different than when you were just the writer on something? Was there a little more sort of separation that you'd sort of let like go earlier, or what's what, what's that been like?
1: Yeah, it has it has been a little more of that. I mean, you feel there's not say about blame or, or um, responsibility or anything else like that, whether it does well or doesn't. Uh, But at the same time there, this is, this is singles tennis. Now, you know, this isn't doubles. This, this isn't a team sport, even though obviously it it is, you know, behind the scenes. What, but as far as the people watching the movie are concerned, if the movie sucks, it's the director's fault. Uh, uh, So it's, it's, it's it's yeah, of course. There was ner- there were some nerves that were that were built in this time around. I mean, you and I did. And we talked the other day. You know, when the when on, during on the ninth when the film was released on iTunes, it just kind of occurred to me at around like four o'clock in the afternoon. I, you know, I obviously you you know that there are going to be people that dislike anything you do, be it a movie or whatever, anything, anything in life. People just might not like it, and that's fine. I mean, you develop, you have to have a thick skin in, in this business to to succeed. And keep doing it. So, anyway, long story short, I knew, I, I anticipate that's going to be the case that people won't like the movie. But what occurred to me is just, oh my God, I'm like, what if everybody hates the movie?
2: Everybody. <laughs> they all blame you.
1: Yeah, they, and they will all blame me. And they'll say, why did you decide to direct movies? You, just, you should have just maybe kept writing movies. But honestly, after seeing this, we hated it so much. Maybe you shouldn't even do that anymore either. So it was like this, just this hour of panic. And I actually, I talked to Dan and I talked to a few other people. I was like, just, just, just be honest with me. Like it, it's, it's at least pretty good, right? Like if you guys weren't just saying that, right. It's at least pretty good. So, uh, yeah, it, it had a, it had a, um, there were some, there were different, there are different feelings built in this time. There are different feelings of, uh, of responsibility towards it, I guess.
0: Yeah. I think you always get caught up in, in, when you're making, you're in such a vacuum sometimes. Like I remember on Atticus, um, you know a lot of times you're in the room with, with the editor and and you kind of go through these these patches where you know it's just the three of you in a room looking at stuff and so you're you're always like desperate for you know whether it's my my PA friend mike who who does runs and stuff or like you know or you know my girlfriend vivian or someone you're just like please like somebody else come in and right. just make sure that we're not insane yeah like exactly just, <laughs> uh Matt, do you ever come across that? I mean when you build apps or do sites or anything tech-wise, like is it – do you have such a small control group or is it more more of an interactive experience?
2: Uh, I guess it depends what it is. I guess this is the the emperor's new clothes problem. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, everyone thinks you're like this is the best thing. It's like we cut out that
0: that big scene where we revealed the plot. We took it out because (laughs) – we
2: think it's better without
0: it, and and I mean, like you're con- you're convinced it works until someone comes in and they're like you're you're fucking nuts. I think
2: right. there's a lot of consumer apps out there where it's like it's not something you're willing to pay for. It's like maybe like some kind of Facebook competitor or something like that, and people will always go, yeah, I, I'd use that, I, I'd use that, and they're usually lying. They're usually just trying to be polite. Um, mm-hmm. In the kind of software that we, meet, that we make, which is like business to business, it's, it's like, are you going to pay for it? If you're not going to pay for it, you don't want it and we shouldn't make it. Mm-hmm. So it's a little easier because you can just be like, are you going to pay for this right now? And how much are you? Like, right. you pay this much <laughs> or you pay that much? That's and true. I mean, you're forcing that bluntness that we were talking about before. Yeah. And people, <laughs> they have to either part with their money or not part with their money, so they're not going to do it unless they need it.
1: Right. Do you
0: well, guys then, have, like, test screenings for, for software?
1: So I don't mean to cut you off, Chris. but like, no, is no, there no, like I'm glad you asked. that. That's actually partly to do with what I was going to say, too, so go ahead. Yeah, do you guys
0: have, like, test oh, – yeah. not test screenings, but you have, like, I guess, like, little incubators or something?
2: Yeah. We – um, it's user testing is, is what it's called. And sometimes you – like, sometimes we'll, we'll test with uh, people that are our customers already, and we're just like, this is the next thing that we're going to put out. Like, what do you think? Uh, and – they'll say, yeah, that's something I definitely want to use. No, that's, like, and I think we're kind of lucky. Our customers are, like, really, really opinionated about the stuff that they need because this is, like, a thing that they're using uh, every day. Um, so if, if we're working on the wrong thing, they're going to be, like, upset about it. So we get pretty good feedback in that respect. Mm. Um, well, but also, also no, we, like, no, no. We'll, we'll do, like, a net promoter score, which is we ask people from 0 to 10, uh, would you recommend this to someone else? And we track that, uh, like we ask them like every quarter, and we can kind of see based on like how people are trending, like our and, and the comments that they leave, like why why did you give us a ten? Why did you give us a zero? So we're like constantly trying to get feedback. We,
1: we could, well, it's know. important. I mean, that's why you know it's a strange thing. And this was starting to say before it was when I wrote Buried. It was the first script. Now before that, I had. You know, made some smaller, very, very low budget things, and in one of the one of those projects, naturally, when I screened it, I did it. You know, just a very, very simple test screening, nothing, nothing like a typical NRG screen. Just, just people that I knew and some friends of friends that I didn't really know. That would be maybe hopefully honest. And I, I you know, I made up a, a very standard form one you would pass out on a, at a test screening, where it was just questions. You know, some specific, some a little more broad, but they were all things that I felt needed to be answered. Honestly, you know, things like were you were you confused? Uh, was there any part of it that confused you? And if so, what? Uh, did you like the lead character? And if not, why? Did the ending make sense to you? Did you like it? I mean, down the line, it was just very, very specific, and like I said, somewhat broad questions, but all pointing for to to a very specific, um, you know, for a very specific purpose, and so and naturally when you do that at the point when you're you're editing the film if you if you get if you get a form back that says there's there's huge problems and they're all and you're seeing maybe 60% of the people are identifying this one huge problem it's probably a huge problem but yep. the thing is at that stage you have to pay money you have to spend money to fix it you know whether it's in the editing room that's adding time to what you're paying your editor or maybe you're going shooting pickups or whatever the case may be you know, as we saw with Atticus, Dan, when we, when we got to a point with the edit, we realized there was, there was basically movie missing. You know, there was just story missing that we needed uh, that just wasn't there. It just wasn't in the original script. So uh, when it came to writing Buried, when I, uh, what I actually did is I kind of learned the lesson from that as I wrote the screenplay. And then I wrote a, an almost identical uh, form I, would, I did when I made the, did the test screening of the previous film. And it was just – only now it was about the script. This was before I made the movie. This was about the script for Buried. And just the same things. Did you like the lead character or any parts of the script that were confusing, so on and so forth. All like three or four pages of just this questionnaire. And what I was able to glean from that were some – like one or two things that actually did influence me and, and in some way inform what I did in my subsequent rewrite. So, But at this stage, it was free. I guess that's kind of what the long-winded point I'm trying to make is that it was free to do it at that stage, which was really interesting as opposed to doing on the back end and having to spend money to make those adjustments.
0: Right, before you actually got to – that's interesting. We never actually talked about how um, whenever you give a script to somebody – you know, you're always trying to find a good reader who will give you honest, but kind of kind, but, but actual honest opinions. Uh, but I've never heard mm-hmm. about doing, actually doing like a card on a script because that actually sounds, again, very, very simple, but very productive. Um, well, if some you don't people...
1: have, at the time, and at the time I didn't, if you don't have, I mean, I have my representatives now that serve that purpose and they, they do a great job of, you know, kind of, you know, looking through my material and, and kind of pointing out the, the, the weak spots and everything else. But at that point in my career, I didn't have representatives. I didn't have a circle of, of of writer friends or people whose opinions I trusted in that way that were working in the business. I just had just people. <laughs> I just had every day ordinary people that just knew what made a good story or didn't. And it, these are going to be the people that watch a movie. They're just average moviegoers. So it kind of it, – it actually in a way uh, provided a unique light on the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I'm sure most people uh, – someone – much smarter than myself said this, but I think, I think that ninety percent of edit problems are are script problems, are things that uh, not necessarily issues with the script, but stuff that you just didn't have, or stuff that just mm-hmm. wasn't just wasn't quite fleshed out, or, or just wasn't quite there to the point where, because generally you spend so much time executing and prep, like, how are we going to get the scene? How are we going to do this? How how is the stunt sequence going to work? That the execution usually. Maybe there's one or two gags or one or two things that just doesn't quite work from an execution level, you know. But maybe you shot a scene at a carnival and it's just really loud. But you but you knew that was going to happen. But usually it's stuff where it's it can be on the script level. And I think that you know down the line you you mentioned NRG. That's the Nielsen uh, Nielsen, like the TV box ratings people. Mm-hmm. And doing a Nielsen screening can be up to twenty thousand dollars to get them to recruit three hundred people to do the cards. You hire security. Like, once you're actually making a movie, it's like building – we mentioned – we said that making a movie is like building a set of condos. You know, once you're actually building it, like, you're spending so much money. Like, everything you do just costs money. So I've never heard that story about you actually doing a test screening for your script, but that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, at the time, as I said, I didn't have the – you know, I didn't have the people now that are able to to read my material and give me their feedback. And, you know, even to say – I mean, the the feedback is different now, too, because that also includes – you know, viability in, in the marketplace and everything else like that. And and back then, obviously that's not what I was seeking from those people. I was just looking for feedback on, on the script, on the story, on the characters, so on and so forth. But, um, but no, I mean, it just, it was just, you know, in a way it's, it's kind of emblematic of the, of, of the bigger point we're all making with just the importance of, you know, having your material in a way, just well, it, it's actually it, it goes back to the very first thing we said about that bluntness. You know, being having those people that will be able to stand in the room and either tell you this sucks, and and, and you are crazy, or no, this is this is pretty cool, and you're not crazy after all.
2: Yeah, it reminds me when I had a band in high school, and uh, <laughs> everyone was very polite about how like they're just like, yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. But there was one guy that would just be relentless about how bad. My band was. <laughs> and it just drove me nuts. Was it, was... was it wasn't it me, right? Was it me, was it, is it, is <laughs> it wasn't me. Is was that
0: we're still talking? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it wasn't you. But it was um, like, I I just was like, I'm just going to make this guy change his mind. He's going to think I, this this band is so awesome. And eventually, we played this one show that I think we really just rocked. And he came up to me and he was like, you know what? That was pretty good. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, it, that it must be good if that kid was saying that it was good.
1: Well, it right. empowers you too. You're right. You get that. I mean, it's, it's, one, it's weird. It's kind of like it doesn't do you any good to have people pulling punches and, and yeah. certainly to have people just kind of patting you on the back when in reality they're you know, be talking behind their hands saying different things. It, 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 you know i did have a similar situation kind of like a welcome to the nfl moment with this one guy when i when i made a uh, a very 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 low budget project that i did years ago that i was you know i was proud of and i, I guess i mean i still am today just because i did it uh and you know i it's something i would showed i had showed people and they were like oh i like it i like it you know and whatever and i just gave it to him and this was someone that was you know, kind of not in the business, but he was at least a, like a legit filmmaker, I would say. Right. Um, You know, locally anyway. And I think he's from the Boston area. So I was like, oh, this guy, he's like, you know, kind of like the real thing. And so now it's going to be cool. He's going to like it. And he, I remember he sent me an email where he just said, look, you know, it's, it's great that you're, that you're, you're doing it, that you're out there trying to make it happen. But I couldn't even get through the first half an hour of it. I had to turn it off.
0: And I was crushed. That's a, pr- that's a pretty honest assessment, though. I mean, yeah, it was. Probably...
1: <laughs> It really, really was, and I was like, you know, what? of course, naturally, my first reaction was, "Fuck you," but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but at the same time, it was like, you know what? This is this is actually probably the most valuable feedback I've gotten so far.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to talk about location independence a little bit and, and kind of your your backstory because. Uh, like Chandler, uh, we had on last week. We actually have two people uh, in exactly. a row from Providence, which is. Oh,
1: uh, they from Friends. Right,
0: right, which is, uh, yeah, exactly. That's the only Chandler I know. Um, but no, Chandler <laughs> Quincy, we had on last week, uh, not from Friends. Uh, I wonder, like, that must suck to have that name. We didn't really talk about it, though. I don't know why. There's like a Chandler Parsons who's on Dallas uh, in, in the NBA, but I don't know any other Chandlers. I don't know. Maybe we should have. Yeah. We dropped the ball. We should have. Yeah. yeah. We should have taken in the task for <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway. So, uh, but you're, uh, but you're from Rhode Island originally, and you live there now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, there was a spate in the early 2000s when you came out to LA. Um, as a, you know, you, you'll tell a story about how you hitchhiked across the country with your friend Joe to become actors. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if that's true, but, um. But you know, you came out to LA uh, as as an actor, and, and obviously started writing, and now you're back in in Providence. So, what was that journey like? And and do you believe that your location independent as a writer, you could literally be anywhere?
1: Uh, yeah, I do. Um, the first part of that is I so we I didn't hitchhike. That <laughs> that part is not true. Uh, I did not hitchhike. I just uh, I took a plane, uh, <laughs> and, and so I. <laughs> But I got here. I was I was like well, here. Here being is actually Rhode Island. I mean, should I, there. I got to Rhode Island to LA when I was twenty, and I was primary, I was an actor. So that's I moved out there to do that. And so I I just you know I just took on too much. I was acting. I had left college halfway through, so I started taking classes at UCLA. Just college classes separate from that. So I was taking those classes. I was taking acting classes. I was going to auditions. I was waiting tables. So it was just it was like this is crazy. And so. After a while, I started to just kind of take stock of of where I was at with with my career. And I was like, well, I go on this many auditions, and I get this many callbacks, and I've gotten this many roles. If I do that math, it doesn't look good. I mean, it's like I I could be doing this for the next 30, 40 years and and not get to where I want to be. So I said I need to kind of rethink that strategy. So I said let me at least go home and finish college to get that off my plate. So that's what I did. I moved back east, finished college. And then drove back to LA. So this time I drove, I didn't fly, I drove across country to LA. And I arrived on September 10th, 2001. So the night before September 11th.
2: Oh, man.
1: And so basically I got, I arrived in LA at like 11 o'clock at night and just went to sleep and then woke up the next day and it was September 11th. And obviously the whole world was turned upside down in LA uh, notwithstanding. So I didn't know what was going on. It was like, it was just crazy for about, three or four months and there was nothing doing with the industry because this is something else I don't know if people remember or not but the anthrax scare happened just after 9-11 yeah. so that was when so yeah okay so the, for people that don't remember that was when there was a letter that had been sent laced with anthrax and I believe someone died I, I don't don't quote me on that but I believe that happened and so it caused this additional scare how oh, that affected the industry was that – at that time, this was pre-digital. This was like before YouTube was even thought of. This was a long time It was like before.
0: six years before YouTube, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: So there were no th- – submissions of headshots and resumes were, w- that was primarily still done with hard copies and everything else. It wasn't electronic like it is now. So if you're an actor and you can't even send out headshots because people aren't opening their mail, which people <laughs> weren't doing – it was pointless. And then, you know, the amount of auditions that I was going on, it was just a fraction of what I had gone on previously, you know, normally. So again, I just said, well, this, this isn't working. So I just basically just decided to move back East again and regroup and, and start making my own things, you know, writing and making my own things. And that's, and that's what I did. So now for the second part of your question, I I've been lucky, you know, I've been, I've been pretty fortunate in that I haven't moved had to move back to LA. I've been able to do what I do now for, uh about six years professionally uh from from rhode island i mean it's it's not to say i don't go to la because i'm there pretty often i just it, it just never it's never necessitated to move back
0: yeah i i saw you randomly pulling out of my uh my office and i almost hit you with my car yes uh, that's wait, right re- last, i was like was last that sure. is that yeah. chris barley yeah is that somebody in a rental car driving slowly because he doesn't know <laughs> where he where he is that must be that, chris barley that was me uh but uh but yeah, we were talking because Matt works in—he's uh, a UX designer and web, you know, web and, and a coder—and you're in charge of all of that. Um, as a producer, it's tough to be location independent a little bit because there's so many different projects going on. But Matt was uh, Matt's going to Thailand for an entire month uh, in May, and he wants to push the limits of being location independent. But really, you've been the pioneer of this all along because uh, <laughs> you live in Rhode Island. Uh, yet you uh, are a very accomplished screenwriter. Although I guess if you were, um, I guess being a producer or director might be difficult uh, to do that early on, but um, what do you, what do you do? So do you, you, you write from home and then you kind of come in to, you know, you like try and come in and have like seven meetings a a day for five days or what sort of your process?
1: Yeah, that's actually pretty much how it goes. So I'll, I'll set up all my meetings in a week or two week span and just crank and so i can kind of get those done whether they're generals or about a particular project or from pitching on something or whatever the case is so it's i'm able to do it that way and as a result of that i can kind of get away with going and coming into town like four or five times a year uh just regularly scheduled trips you know that's not counting anything that is you know something like just different that i need to be there for or some sort of fire drill that just like requires you know like all of a sudden this thing's popped up and i have to in a way deal with it so You know, that's kind of the way it's been. And as far as my writing, it's, I get a lot more writing done. I mean, I get very little writing done when I'm in LA. And granted, part of that is because I'm, as I just said, spending, like doing seven meetings a day, which, you know, it doesn't leave me much time to write. Uh, But even when I'm able to, even when I'm able to find the time to write in LA, just something, my head just isn't as, as in it. As, as it is here. And I think it's because here I'm outside that bubble. I'm outside that industry where I'm just, and I've said this many times and like other podcasts and stuff, I'm just going to work here. Like it's, I'm, I'm just like everybody else in Rhode Island, my friends, my family, everybody else. You just get up and you go to work you know it 's what I did before I was a screenwriter with different jobs. You get up and go to work and you work a hard day and, and that 's it. so I kind of put in my hours the same way where I get up and whether i 'm working from home or working at i don 't know work writing at Starbucks or something that 's it so I think because of that I, the the work ethic remains more of the standard work day and doesn 't become kind of the fluffy. L.A. work day where meetings become work and coffee becomes work. And then before you know it, just like doing nothing becomes work sometimes.
0: Yeah, that's sort of dangerous. Um, I feel that a lot. There's definitely a bubble here where um, my favorite days in L.A. are sort of like when I leave and when I come back, which I know sounds sort of a lot like, like prison from The Wire. Um, <laughs> so, But it's like whenever I leave, I'm like, okay, now I can escape the bubble and, and get some stuff done. And when I come back, I'm like, all right, I'm recharged. Now I'm going to get back into it. And then, yeah. and then, and then you inevitably slip into uh, just sort of that, you know, because there's no seasons, right? So you kind of go right. through the motions in L.A. And, and, like, the passage of time is based on sort of how many meetings you have and how many movies you're working on rather than actual real passage of time. Yeah, uh, It's a really weird phenomenon.
2: Yeah. I mean, um, sometimes I'll, I'll – I mean, even though there's, there's – the seasons in, in Philadelphia are uh, stark. They're, like, they're right in your face. Sometimes I'll just kind of, like, I'll look down at my desk, and I'll look up, and it's, like, a month later.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, well, you should probably get that checked out. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're blacking out I'll, again. <laughs> blacked uh, out for a full month. <laughs> nailed that project, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you have been abducted by aliens. <laughs> just just
1: so you're aware. That's what's happened to you. And We'll get to that.
2: I can't tell if that's a, exactly a good thing or it's a bad thing. No, Some, getting
1: abducted by aliens is not a good thing. <laughs>
2: I, you know, I, I would. I would. I would love to uh, see if I can get abducted by aliens, and then I would start. That I would start writing. They,
0: they only. They only abduct the coolest people. If, if you right. look at all those TV shows where people talk about, it, they only abduct the absolute like pristine, awesomest people. And uh, I thought they only but, abducted like the drunk people that were already yelling at the sky. I'm. That's why I'm being absolutely sarcastic. But. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll have Giorgio on at some point which we'll get to uh but uh toscalas obviously but um oh yes <laughs> oh, of course <laughs> ancient,
2: <laughs> with the tan, ancient with the tan aliens the hair. ancient aliens is one of my favorite shows on television <laughs> because it's you get exactly what you think you're going to get and I, <laughs> i've ahead. had to stop watching i stopped watching it a while ago i used to like it quite a
1: bit and then it just became way too much of a reach i mean yeah, it was an it's interesting like... you know the, the Carried to the gods, sort of. Uh, just I, I agree idea. totally. And then now it's it's gone above and beyond that to the point of just absurdity. So <laughs> well, I have, I have
0: a I have a friend named Rob O'Brien who uh, who worked on the Den. Who actually he said, like, "Yeah, I'm a story producer for Ancient Aliens." I'm like, "Well, <laughs> what does that mean?" And he's like, "Well, yeah, I just I, I just write stuff." And um, and he's like, "Yeah, we're." I was like, "Rob, it's season five. Like, you know, you guys are kind of reaching towards the bottom of the barrel here. You know, it's like you've you've sort of covered everything." I'm imp- I'm impressed. I'm shocked that it's gone on for five seasons. And he's like, "Yeah, well, there's a whole there's a whole episode coming up on the number 23." And I'm like, "Okay." <laughs>
2: <laughs> so it's like, uh, it? comes after 22. It's what like, well, we it? did 20. We did zero to 22. We just yeah, have to do 23 now. It's like 23 is a prime number. It's, uh,
1: it's like okay. Well, there was that movie, that Jim Carrey movie
2: all oh, right uh, number no, 23 really? so there
1: must be some significance to that number i i can't imagine what it has to do with aliens be it <laughs> be it current ones or ancient they ancients.
2: they're starting to like stretch what it means by ancient aliens they're just like ancient like extra like they they start they start pointing to like um asteroids and stuff like that it's like are the cells that are on asteroids ancient alien technology sent to us it's just like no it's it's like it's it's a piece of organic material that's on a rock that's been flying around (laughs) the universe (laughs) yeah where it's like like plagues throughout history it's like well what does this
0: have to do with ancient aliens like like the black death like like and the guy's like could it be that by having you know this thing and like killing the cats and stuff and it's like all right all right all right well good good for you um
2: but uh I'm not sure how we got here. But uh Oh I just wanted to you you mentioned the, the, the Greek the Greek dude.
0: Oh oh to soccer. <laughs> yeah my yeah, yeah, lost yeah. time.
2: Yeah. Matt lost time on oh, right. his desk.
0: <laughs> 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 no no well Matt in you know, we've been to San Francisco, obviously you've you haven't really worked there that much, but it, the weird phenomenon of LA is that You know, there's there's a story I heard. We did a screening uh, at Blumhouse, Jason Blum's uh, company, a few weeks ago, and they have a real compound. It's Mm -hmm. sort of in downtown Koreatown, and those guys, you know, those guys really know, obviously know how to make genre movies. They yeah, they did Paranormal Activity, they did Sinister, Insidious, The Purge. I mean, they really know what they're doing. And we did a screening there a few weeks ago, and there was like two people who appeared to be bums outside. But they were just like these kids who may have been homeless who had these DVDs and they were outside and they were like, oh, Jason won't return my calls. I had this found footage movie about about hijacking a bus and it's like – it's like, all right, buddy. But literally everyone here, like everyone in this town is trying to make a movie or a TV show or something and it's it kind of gets you after a while. Like, do you Do you sense that in San Francisco? Is there any other comp to – to sort of the film industry somewhere else, but for tech or some other, do you you get the same sense?
2: I'm not, I'm not sure exactly the analogy you're trying to create. I mean, just that everyone's very desperate
0: to get into the industry and everyone in LA sort of wants the same thing and it's unhealthy. It's completely unhealthy
2: for us. It's unhealthy in that you get like, do you remember when we were in San Francisco, we went to this one bar and you could tell that everyone there worked at Facebook or Google or something that just got funded? And yeah. we were playing pool and it was just like, everybody was, was like talking about like, who's that guy? Like, I, we haven't seen him before. They were like talking about you talking about me. He's like, I think he works in finance at Google. It was, it was like a, almost like an American psycho moment. It's like, that's, that's like Peter Halberstrom who works. It's like no, that's yeah, Paul they, Allen. yeah, they were talking about the but yeah. It was like an American Psycho moment about
0: the cards, but about like did did that guy exit for like all that money from his little like startup? It was yeah. like,
2: and I was like, this is surreal. This is like the weirdest. Like I, this is what you would imagine an exaggerated uh, HBO version of this would be. But it's like we're in it right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was very weird for me so, after
2: being like exec
0: lunches and be like, well, that guy reps that guy, but he used to be on here and he used to be on his desk. Well, yeah. I came up with that guy. who used to be on this guy's desk. Yeah, and and that's have,
2: like this assistant lunch. That's <laughs> the part of it. That's just like really annoying. And it's this like race. It's this race to, you know, live in this really expensive city. And, you know, you're trying to like shove your entire working life into about like eight years, uh, and exit and be gone or, you know, become a venture capitalist or something like that. Become Elon Musk. That part of it is, like, really annoying because, like, th- it's the odds of you actually pulling that off are so low. But the other aspect of it is just, like, if you know no one and you want to get into that industry and you want to just, like, make some contacts and get out of there or, you know, not be a part of that, I would advise you to just go. Like, go to San Francisco, live in a you know, an expensive place that's really tiny. I mean, we did this in New York, and it was worth it. Um, oh, Yeah.
0: Well, Chris, how did you how did you sell buried? Like how did you get how did you get in the
1: game? Well, I, I was standing outside a Blum House, uh, people thought I was a bum. <laughs> and no, a, a quick fact about Blumhouse though, it is a cool little compound he has there. That building, you know, it's just kind of apropos to, considering the type of movies he makes, used to actually be owned by Cat Fancy magazine. Huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that was what was there before.
0: That's um, uh, that's very a very bizarre tidbit that I thought I think no one else knows, but we, yes. I guess we, well, we all know
1: well, it now. Someone there does. That's how I learned. Uh, but uh, you were asking me what I'm so hard I get my break. Yeah. Um, with buried it was it was tough. It was you know I I had been a writer at that point because I transitioned more from acting to writing, especially when I moved back here to Rhode Island. Uh, and you know I just started writing. I mean I just kept doing it more and more, and I. And I kind of, I just would, I I really didn't have much access. And again, this is, you have to bear in mind, this is, this is by this point, like 10 years ago, you know, or at least, at least, well, to get say seven years ago, right before Barry, because I think kind of that break came six years ago or so. Um, You know, there's no such thing as the blacklist service that you see now where they, where you can post your, your, your script and get legitimate feedback from people actually in the industry. You know, you had obviously uh, some outlets for your script in the form of the nickel and and uh, you know, and, and this and just very some some competition. Some aren't aren't. I don't know. I don't know if they're if they're what they claim to be or not. But regardless, there just wasn't much access, and and so you just you kind of found yourself a lot of times just writing fade out on one script and writing fade in on the next, and and you just can just continue with that process, and it it thankfully it. You know, I, I was able to make contact with the person that's now my manager. At some point, with an earlier script, and that was enough to kind of spark his interest. And then I kept in touch with subsequent 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 scripts. Scripts. I can't talk. You know. What I'm, you know. What I'm trying <laughs> to say. It's late for me. It's like eleven fifteen at night. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so yeah. Thankfully, thankfully, Barry was the one that finally clicked for him.
0: So we always talk about. You know, overnight success, ten years in the making. I think we'll we'll link to it um, on our site or somewhere. But I think recently you were you were voted like the top ten like promising screenwriters or something. And and on the one hand, I forget what the list is. You can correct me. Um,
1: it was some, um, what, yes, that was it. it. It it wasn't ten most eligible bachelors. I assure you, and my <laughs> right. and my wife can certainly assure you.
0: Yes, uh, for sure. But but what was what was the exact distinction? Because I sort of took a little bit of an offense to it. Because it's kind of the whole. It's It's like, well, it's like, well, Chris has been fucking working for years. Like, I've been working with Chris for years. You know, it's like, it's like, oh, uh, it's like, thank you that finally he made it onto your radar. We, you know, which I feel like happens all the time in in this town. And and we joke on this podcast about people using the word Hollywood to like make it seem like there's five guys in a room making decisions. It's like, well, Hollywood. It's like Hollywood thinks this, and it's like, well, okay. Um, (laughs) It's it's like the White House today.
1: Obviously, obviously, I was honored to, to get it. I, I, I was joking before; I, I thought you meant you were you were upset because you weren't selected, and I was like, you should have been selected.
0: Um, <laughs> it was an honor just to be nominated. Chris. That's right. Uh, no, so, no, I, I'm not talking shit on them either. I'm just saying it's that kind of thing where it's like, yeah, well, no, I know, I know.
1: It's the uh, sort of thing where it's like, yes, it, it's it's an interesting thing to be viewed as you know someone to watch. But I've been I've been working in the industry now for six years. So it's but at the same time it's it's not it's not like everybody knows who I am. It's, it's, that'd be kind of crazy to think that. So I have I have no doubt there were people that read that piece and were like, oh yeah, I don't know him, so I will watch him. <laughs> you know, so I guess so. It's definitely it was definitely a cool thing. I, I I was um like I said I was honored they brought us out to Whistler, uh, just outside of Vancouver for the Whistler Film Festival. They did some really cool event there for us, so it was it was nice. But I, some, I know you I see the point you're making.
0: You got some air miles. You got some skiing in. It was good. Yes.
1: Uh, I did not get any skiing in, unfortunately. Well, I shouldn't say unfortunately. I can't really ski, so it's probably that's a fortunate thing that I didn't ski. On oh, a, you didn't tear your didn't tear mountain. your ACL. Uh, didn't you're good. tear my ACL, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> um, and and it was fun.
0: Well, no, well, part of the point is that um, I'm sure Matt can relate to this as sort of a coder and someone who builds stuff where people don't really see the back end architecture. But I feel as though, you know, screenwriting, I think John August and and Craig Mazin on their podcast, Script Notes, talk about this all the time. But it's the only form of writing besides, you know, for stage play, but it's the only kind of writing where the audience does not read the writing. You know, the audience sees the movie or the play or the TV show, but the audience does not see the writing. But the writing is still a medium, it's still a form. And so what's really bizarre uh, is that there's so many writers who maybe have one or two credits, but they've been. Not ghostwriting, but they've been fixing, they've been updating, they've been they've been they've been working for years without getting yeah. s- sort of the respect or the credits. But around town, they're known, which is sort of a very weird. What what can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Well, I mean, here's the thing: it was that there's that famous Irving Thalberg quote, uh, and I'm going to butcher it right now, but just to paraphrase it, it's something like the the writer is the most important part of this, and we have to make sure that they never find that out. So it's something to, <laughs> you know, it's something like I said, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> But it's the truth. I mean, look. You know, with none of, the, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a writer. You know, uh, it, it's it, unless you're doing an improv piece, none of it happens if the script isn't there. And and while it is still a director's medium, you know, an argue, argument can be, can be made that that maybe TV is is an example of where it's more of a writer's medium. But it's it is an interesting thing to to know that what you're writing is not is essentially uh it 's a blueprint you know you 're like you 're like an architect you 're just kind of doing the plans but you 're not going to be the one building the building and you 're certainly not going to be the person that necessarily gets the penthouse suite of that building you know so it's it, and i think that 's partly why and, and and that makes it sound like it 's ego driven or control driven and that's, and that's admittedly some of it, but not all of it, but that's, that's all of this has to do with part of the reason why I think I, I want to direct more, you know, after Atticus, you know, where I feel like I want at least, you know, the bigger pieces, I want to be able to see my vision through just beyond what I've written.
2: Yeah, yeah no, for sure. Dan, I wanted to bring up, um, I like think a conversation we had a while back where you, you mentioned something along the lines of like, you know, you have the writer writes a script, you guys option it. And then, uh, you know, five different people tear it apart and they rewrite it and then it gets made as a movie. And I think I'd ask you, it was like, if well, if that kind of thing is happening, what what do you need the writer for in the first place? And... Well, no, it's that,
0: yeah, no, it's it's the kind of thing where, and that's not a typical, that's sort of, I think the example I was giving you was sort of like the typical development hell sort of example. I was like, this is the worst this is the worst of of the business right where you have a really great idea you've unfortunately you've sat on it for 3 years because if you're an independent producer you you need a bigger producer or a bigger studio to get it made unless unless you're going to self finance it yeah and like Cause anything
2: cuz i was thinking from like the writer's perspective i guess if it's not happening that often it's it's not that big a deal from a but from a writer's perspective wouldn't that be like really annoying well, I think it happens, it happens a lot. I think oh, my the, example. To be rewritten? Yeah, like you write oh, yeah. a script, you're like, this is exactly how I have this in my head. You sell it, which is good, but you want to see the thing made. And then you're just like, that's not what I wrote.
1: I've been lucky with the three, well, obviously with Atticus because I directed it, but now four movies with, with The Sea of Trees coming out. It Those the, those four movies now I've had produced, I've been lucky in that I've been the only writer on the project, you know, from my original idea. But honestly, Matt, that's that's actually not usually the way it goes. It's kind of it's, it's it's kind of common to have to be rewritten to have your stuff rewritten. And I mean, I've been I've been hired to rewrite other people's stuff. So I mean, it's just kind of. I think what happens is the more you, the longer you're in the game, you start to just. I don't want to say you don't care as much because you do, but you you start to understand that that's how it works. It's like because you've rewritten other people's stuff, so then when that day comes when my stuff's going to get rewritten, you're just. You just say it's just like all right, cool. Well, I mean that's just how it goes, yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: Okay. What's um? We talk about some of like we joke about like the worst pitches we've had because, you know, Matt and I own a commercial company together. Obviously, I made movies. Matt works in tech. Um, what's the pitching process like, Chris? When you have to when you come in, I guess they call it like a writing assignment, right? Like when in when, when you come in and and you pitch to rewrite something, mm-hmm. is that sort of generally what it is?
1: Yeah, it is that. I mean, and that's, you know, kind of going back to your earlier question about what's it like living outside of LA. That is certainly something that hasn't been the greatest aspect of that because I've had to pitch over the phone. I've had to pitch via Skype at times and pitching in person is always better. You know, if I've already met the people and I know the people fairly well, it's not as big of a deal. But if you, if you're, pitching to a room full of people and you know they're in a conference room and you've never met any of them or just only met one or two of them it's just a really weird experience and you yeah. know that even if you're if even if you're on point you know you would have rather have been
2: on point yeah than... it's like the best you could do is like 75 percent.
1: yes exactly so in in those instances it's you know there are times where it's i kind of if i if i can't if i can't in a way kind of i mean of course i can't jump on a plane and and go out there but I, I pitch on a lot of projects. So it's like to constantly be doing that, then I then I'm at the point where I have necessitated the move to LA because I may yeah. as well just stay because I'm gonna be turning around every every couple of weeks. So uh so that process though, Dan is you know, you just it depends on what you're given right I mean so if it's an upper, it's a straight up rewrite assignment, let's say there's a script that uh the producers have or the studio has has and uh they're you know maybe they're not totally in love with it, and there's certain aspects of it that they want fixed though they may come to you and say we it, we feel it needs character work or we feel it needs dialogue improvement and or the third action just make work.
0: it better chris we, we we it just needs to be better
1: yeah I mean, <laughs> but that's kind of what they're saying i mean but sometimes they're specific in how they want it better and so you know so it's in other times it's not that at all you're pitching on a job that's just pretty much just an assignment from the get go where it's a, a producer might have you know uh, either something they want to adapt a book they want to adapt or just an, an idea just a kernel of an idea that they're looking for a writer to uh, to execute so it, it, in those versions it's it becomes a little bit of a bake off especially earlier on earlier on in your career and and again, that's just part of the games too. So it's it's you versus it's like an audition. You no, know? it's like you versus five other writers, ten other writers, fifteen other writers. Who, who knows? Depending on on the project, and and they're kind of they're kind of waiting to hear their best, you know, their favorite take on the material.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a uh, term we have bake off. If we're going directly against a competitor during a sales situation, I think that's mm-hmm. funny. You use that too? Oh, there we go. We should, we should add that to the,
0: uh, the myriad of, uh, the (laughs) dictionary. Yeah. The mercenary, yeah. The mercenary, uh, uh, bake off. What was some of the other, Oh, the whisper down the lane clusterfuck. That's when, that's when, uh, (laughs) you, uh, you have five different people like passing on information. Yeah. Oh, subcontracting is, uh, I think think
2: Chandler said he called it telephone, which also somebody, my, my company called it the same thing. This is the first time I'd ever heard whisper down the lane called telephone. Uh, but. That's pretty good, um, but yeah,
0: Chris. In terms of, so it seems as though with, as you said, going back to as the director, obviously you can control more. Um, so how did Atticus come about? And really, I sort of know the answer. The answer is Ancient Aliens is is really how <laughs> Atticus because you you were like okay, so you know I know you Dan like when you watch Ancient Aliens if, if you're watching if you're skipping through TV and Ancient yeah. Alien is on. You're you're gonna you're gonna watch three minutes of it, and I'm like and I'm like you you're right you're right I'm gonna watch <laughs> at least three minutes of it because as we, as we know the ancient aliens formula is kind of half truth stretched half truth and then complete
2: fallacy that's right. the aliens. For, a, for a second you're just like maybe like maybe and they're gonna be projection. right this time
0: <laughs> right this time you know this time you know what if at the end of this they're they're gonna find something right um. But, yeah, it's like there are pyramids. We don't really know how old or how they were built. Aliens. That's like the –
2: That's the. <laughs> it's like this is a reach, no evidence, aliens, therefore aliens. Yeah. The, the, I will say that, like, to, we don't have to talk anymore about this, but the, the one thing that I, I do suggest people watch is there is a three-hour point-by-point rebuttal of every single thing in every Ancient Aliens episode, and it's better than the episode's.
1: Oh, that's awesome! You guys should link to that. And, yeah, we should I do that. Yeah,
2: I'll definitely will. Because it's like it's like uh, here is some outrageous claim, and that's entertaining. And then it's just like here is a history lesson on how that outrageous claim is completely false. And then it's just that <laughs> over and over again, and you get to learn about all this cool stuff. Um, but, but Chris
0: was like, I, you know, obviously I've, I've written I've written these things, and I wanna I wanna direct uh, this film. But you know, I want to make a documentary that's not really a documentary, but about Um, a real-life event that could have been a government conspiracy. And I want to make it so detailed and so nuanced in how it's done because the universal, I think, is in the specific. And what that means is if you can really drill down to specific things and not have vague talking points but have specific things in a movie, people can project their own – that's how I felt about Boyhood. You you watch Boyhood, you project your own life events on that movie – Completely different movie than Atticus, but anyway, the point is that you project sort of your own consciousness on specific things that you can relate to, and so your your whole thing with the Atticus Institute was, I'll, I want to make a possession conspiracy movie, uh, or a conspiracy movie that happens to be a possession movie, and I don't think I've seen that before. Um, I think that was sort of the that was the etymology and the genesis of that of that process.
1: Yeah, it was that. But even before that, I had I had been kind of walking around with. A particular idea it's kind of a nugget of an idea for about a year or two before that and that was just this notion of I don't even have a notion but just like I said this this thought that with all these with all these possession stories we've heard and movies we've seen and so-called true life accounts and books and everything else. so all this information is out there and look I'm not saying it's real or not I honestly have no idea but what has always kind of made me think, you know what, maybe at the end of the day it's not real, is the fact that if you had somebody who could do these things, right, if you had someone like these possessed people that can supposedly move stuff with their mind and levitate uh, themselves and, and all these things, right, read minds, if there was someone actually out there like that really doing these things, the government would would, would get involved because there's no way the government would be perfectly okay with this type of person, with this type of power yeah. just roaming freely they're like a. it's like i've said many times it's like they're an x-men like an x-man you know they're a mutant that person would be considered a a threat to national security because if you have those abilities what's to say you're not going to use them on a state official or whatever the case may be so that to me was always the definitive point of all right so i guess it is it is kind of bullshit so that then led to the, the the question of well well, what if then? Like, what if there was a case that the government did step in on? Well, then that—I mean, well, then that one would have to be real, right? Because they're actually the government is is taking this pretty damn seriously. So that was something I had for a while. I just didn't know how to tell the story. I mean, I kind of—I—I I, I thought about doing it in a more traditional way, and and you know, I just wasn't I wasn't really loving how you know, thinking of how this could play out. And then I, uh, but I mean,
0: by traditionally you mean iambic pentameter. You mean you mean yeah. you, you mean you <laughs> yes, mean
2: I Shakespeare. Uh, no, yeah. I feel like you're. I
1: mean, I mean, in blank verse, actually.
2: Your <laughs> um, like so, your thought process might have been like, if men who stare at goats was really violent. Right. <laughs> like, let's, let's go from there.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, so it's it, it kind of evolved into what Dan was saying, more of the conspiracy thing after that, and to say like, what would the government do? Because once they were there, and once they confirmed, yes, this lady was possessed, and she has these abilities. Well, they wouldn't just turn around and go back to Washington. The Defense Department would want to somehow utilize this woman and these abilities. And so the idea to weaponize her became kind of the missing piece to that to that thing I'd been kicking around for a while. And so I had watched a, a documentary, which wasn't a documentary. It was a fake documentary called uh, Death of a President. And it was about the assassination of George Bush. Now, it, I watched it. It came out when George Bush was in office. So obviously there was no illusion that this was – that this was real, but it was so, I felt, I felt it was gripping to the point of I went along for the ride. And I think it was largely because the people being interviewed were, were supposedly these people and authority figures. So there was, it was the deputy director of this, it was a secret service agent. It was, you know, the, this person, all these people that were again, authority figures. And I always go back to the, the Stanley Milgram study, the, the obedience to authority study, because, I feel like once just psychologically when we hear that sort of stuff, when we hear authority figures saying things, we're just more inclined to believe them because we think we just obey them. We believe them. And so because this movie, Death of a President, had all these these authority figures essentially saying this stuff, even though you knew it was fake, it just kind of lent more credence to it. And that's – I said, you know what? That was really interesting. So I said, well, what if I did – a, you know, something in a, this documentary style, making it seem as real as I possibly could. Uh, you know, the, and, I, and I'm having these, again, these people from the government, from the Defense Department, be it, you know, the, the Defense Intelligence Agency or, or whatever the case may be, having people like that talking about scientists, too. You know, scientists, again, authority figures, we, we scientists don't lie to us. And, and if you if you kind of just litter the movie with people like that and they're talking about something, it just automatically creates this sense of realism. And so that was, and when I landed, I said, yeah, that's how I should do this movie. And so it, what it thankfully also created was an opportunity to do it kind of on the cheap because half of the movie now, at least would be standard talking head documentaries, you know, uh, interviews rather. So it was, it doesn't necessarily require a whole lot of money. So you couple that with the fact that I wanted it to seem as real as I probably can make it. So that meant not hiring a list actors or even really you know even just people that were immediately recognizable so i wanted to purposely avoid that so that so just because of that it means you don't have to spend necessarily a ton of money on actors so it's kind of like it was arriving in a way almost like barry did where i wanted to direct a movie and i was in a way backing into the into the production of it
0: well, I would say that you did um, you did set it in the '70s, which is a great period for conspiracy, but can be. You did make a '70s period piece. I did. So there was a, there was a little bit of
1: production value. Uh huh. There was. Yeah, there was. Dan, I mean this this is certainly a credit to you as well. Uh, you know, I I think for for the size of the movie and you know and and just just the budget we had and everything else, I I think we we did something that's pretty cool. I mean, I think you know, we did, we made a seventies period piece and there were a lot of moving parts. And that was the interesting thing when it was all said and done too, is that I, you know, this is my first, you know, legit feature that I was doing here. And I wanted to do something that was pretty streamlined and manageable. But at the end of the day, I realized I'm like, this thing was so many moving parts between the archival footage that we had to create, the the photos we had to create and then, then manipulate them to make them look like they were from that era. And And have young and old versions of actors where we see them them in the present day, we're interviewing them, so they're in about their 60s or 70s now, but then we had to cast versions of them when they were in their 20s or 30s.
0: Oh, right! And that was so the funny it. thing is you, it's like you made this very contained movie and then the it, it, like the idea of it was very contained mm-hmm. um the very very interesting but then the whole world of it was very expansive because yeah, suddenly it was- it's like oh we had these we can shoot a third of the movie with these 10 people who are the older versions of these people but then we need to cast 10 more people who are younger and then 20 more people who are this it's like the cast became huge, huge. and um uh, you know, in terms of we built a lot of the sets from scratch was a little bit of money, but at least it allowed us to have that control. Although we did, we built on practical location, which is interesting. Um, but you know, ultimately, you know, from what I'm hearing, and, and I think people understand that. You know, I haven't seen a people say I haven't seen a possession movie. That is also a conspiracy thing, and I think people, I think I think people are going to like that. So.
1: Yeah, and we were close. I mean, that, again, another credit to you, Dan. Is that I mean, and Matt. I don't, Matt, I don't know how much Dan told you about the process early on. You know, Dan was mm-hmm. was instrumental in terms of you know getting. You know, we we I came obviously I came in with the draft that I had. And, you know, I gave to Peter Saffron, and then Dan. We got Dan on board pretty quick. I think Peter might have called you right after the lunch he and I had when we agreed to do the movie together. And and you know, then we just immediately started conversations about how we could achieve this, you know, hopefully unique take on a possession movie. And and so, Dan, you know, we were very much a partner throughout all of this, sort of a creative partner as well.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I think it's the kind of thing where, and again, you know, uh, Peter, who we, I guess we've referenced a little bit on this podcast, but, you know, Peter, um, one of the reasons why you haven't been rewritten, actually going back to that part, is that, you know, Peter loves working with filmmakers. You know, mm-hmm. he, he loves and... um and and he he really once he has an you know he has an idea that he really likes uh, and and picks up a script he loves working with uh, with writers and sort of respects that process for you people know. who don't know uh, who's Peter uh, Peter Saffron runs the the Saffron Company and um, he used to be a manager uh, I guess in the 90s and early 2000s and he's become a very quickly has become a very prolific uh, independent producer and now uh, studio producer as he he produced the Conjuring. Uh, I guess two years ago and recently the Conjuring uh, spinoff Annabelle and um, is doing a lot of stuff on that side. I guess I've done six or seven films with Peter at this point and, um, you know, hours, um, obviously Atticus, Best Night Ever, um, some of the spoof films that he has, but he's, um, no, he's, he's tremendous to work with and also yeah. both from, you know, it's like he picked, you know, he made Buried happen because he was mm-hmm. like, I think. Yes, he did. A lot of people were like, There's a man in a box for for an hour and a half, like, what the fuck is this movie? <laughs> but um, you know, getting that made and, and and getting, you know, Ryan Reynolds to be like, I want to be in this movie and mm-hmm. I wanna I'm gonna go with that. So um, you know, when he mentioned that, you know, you had this idea for this and it was like cause his you know, his thing to me was like, How can we make this it's like how can we make this for the budget, but also make this Big. How, how can we make this feel big and, and feel like a much bigger world? So um, I give him a lot of credit. But I think ultimately, Atticus is very weird. It's very creepy. It's very, and not to give anything away, but I think thematically, <clears throat> there are, you know, it is a demonic possession film, although it's a, a twist on it. But I think thematically, to me, what's special about it is who exactly becomes the bad guy. Mm-hmm. throughout the process as the government gets involved and people make decisions. Um, and the whole idea by setting it in the 70s as how can we use this woman's uh, gift or curse for our own advantage, I think really gets interesting. So,
2: I-, I wanted to ask one question about like just the nature of movies that are made to be uh, documentaries. And it's like, do you decide at the outset how how convincing of a documentary you want it to be like, there are some, I think there's some movies out there where it's just like, okay, this is a documentary format, but you know, this is a movie. I I understand that. And then there's some that people really believe might've been real. Like, well, that's the goal. I
1: mean, for me, it's weird. Like there's, you know, I, and I, I don't know, maybe it's, I think there's an early poster for the film that came out and, you know, at the top of the poster, it's the only case of you, the only case of possession recognized by the U S government. And that's, I mean that's what's in the film. I mean that's what we say in the film. But you yeah. know, there in King Kong in the film, they say there's a giant ape on top of the Empire State Building. But well, that doesn't mean <laughs> in real life that's true. So it's 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 interesting how that kind of again it's weird. You know, I I told people about it early on. I said what well, I'm making about this movie, this it's a fake documentary, and I would say that. And this goes back to what I think. I said before about the psycholo- psychological impact of, of of referencing authority figures, where I'd say, "Oh yeah, I'm making a fake documentary about about the only government confirmed case of possession," and people would go, "Wow, that's cool. Is that real?" Like, <laughs> no, I just got through saying it's a fake documentary. Of a- and people just kind of just latch yeah. on to certain things. You want things. it to be real. You really I do. I want you... it to seem as real as – and Dan, you probably heard me. I probably sound like a broken record to you. My goal was always for not to try to pull the wool over anyone's eyes and make them think they're, they're, this is based on anything true. Or, or My goal was simply I want it to seem as real as possible so that if you were flipping through the channels and you came upon this movie with no idea what it was, it would seem so real you would actually think it is.
2: Right. Until you you did
1: the research and in an instant, then you would say, all right, well, obviously there's IMDb and it's a bunch of actors. But at that moment watching it, you would have no idea that it wasn't real. And that's the goal. I mean, I don't know how close to that we came, you know, we'll see, but that was the goal. It's
0: the nature of escapism, you know, it's like, even though people, like you said about that conversation, because you're a pretty straight up guy and it's like, even though people were told at the outset, it's a fake documentary, people still, you know, everyone's like, well, oh, well. Uh, Judith Winstead, the, you know, the person who is, uh, you know, the main character in, in this film. And was she, you know, is she real? Can I Google her? That That's like what people just think
2: immediately. Yeah. Right. And I mean, what did you guys think of the fourth kind? Did you see that? I did. I thought it was cool. The I actually Gullsicle movie. Yeah. I, there were some people that came it, up to me real. and they were just like. Yeah, I think that those you know, the the footage that's supposed to be the real footage, that that was real. Like did you see it? Like that how crazy that was. Well, you're dealing with a few things there. You're dealing with
0: that came out in two thousand ten and I actually really like that movie. What's interesting cause uh, uh, Gold Circle uh, Paul Brooks made that movie. And what's interesting oh, really? okay. Yeah, what's what's weird is that that movie got buried because it came out the same weekend as the original Paranormal Activity. And I don't know if you remember this. People thought was, that was real too. Well, well, yeah, but th- that movie did like forty million bucks its yeah. first weekend and completely buried fourth kind. But I really like fourth kind. Um, did, I did
2: too. For the people that haven't seen it, it's the, what was so unique about it was that they shot um, reenactments with with actors that you've you you, you would recognize, and then they shot um, the so so called like you know archival footage or, or the, you know the the um, the real life footage with actors that you don't recognize to make you think that they're just you know, portraying it, uh, to, to make it more exciting with the real act, with, with, the, uh, the known actors. Yeah. But you're actually really are looking at, uh, this old footage that is, is like, is something that really happened. Yeah. And, and it's not coming out by screen, saying split
1: screen too, right. They've
2: yeah. Used, so you watch both the, of right it.
1: Next, yeah. At the same time. Right. It's I, a weird
0: effect, but it's like, by saying it's like, okay, we, we, this is so crazy that we need to reenact this. To sort of separate ourselves from how crazy this event was. Yeah. It completely, not pulls the wool over your eyes, but there's this dramatic irony that yeah, suddenly.
2: I had to go look up. I'm like, what? Is there parts of this that were based on something? Like, what is going <laughs> on here? Like, there were some parts where I'm just like, you know, you know, that that footage is supposed to be real. That's not real. That's just, that's an actor. That's well, just what it
1: spoke it. to, though, you know what, Matt, and I think Dan, you were starting to allude to this uh, earlier, was it came out at a time where you could just find out and you would have known you would have. And that's the thing about a type of movie like this now where you, you know, Blair Witch was able to do what they did because of when it came out. Right. Right. And this is, I mean, if you, I knew that, and I watch, I'm kind of like stammering because of the point is I was trying to, as I'm watching the fourth kind, I'm thinking, wow, this seems pretty real. Because here you have the fake one on the, on the left and on the right is the real one. My God, so that must be real. But then you just stop for a second and say, but I've never seen this footage on the right ever. And there's these crazy things yeah. happening. And <laughs> like I've how would I miss this? Foot- how would I miss this on, you know, when everything, it's ubiquitous now, right? I mean, every, every piece of video footage, even at that time, was available for people to see and, and shoved in front of you. It's so, almost
0: like you need to do a found footage Kennedy movie where you take all the, like, the ZapRuder film and stuff that has been dissected. Like, you almost need to find stuff where it's in completely in the public sphere and then add, like, a little twist to it. That's yeah, a, ter- right. it's a terrible idea.
2: But I'm just getting at, like, like what you're saying is but it's almost could, as though you... You could do that. You could take some piece of footage that is absolutely real, edit something in there, and be like, hi, did you see this? We found this thing. And you could... You can make it so subtle that you could make an entire documentary about dissecting that fake footage. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, again, that gets into a whole other, other category of stuff. But yeah.
1: <laughs> but that's, I mean, to getting back to your question about Atticus, I mean, that was, it was never my desire in the first place to try to do that. But even if it was, you can't anymore. You can't do that anymore. There's no way. When, especially when you just when even IMDb exists. It's like, how fast is it to find out that something that these are a bunch of actors? It takes two seconds. So, uh, you know, I, I, again, I never had that desire in the first place, but it's I don't see how you could pull it off these days otherwise, even if you wanted to.
0: Yeah, I think we were just trying to find the most interesting medium to sort of capture this experience. Yeah. You know, it's sort of um, that allowed us to make the movie for the price, but also to then have the control to, to do lots of interesting stuff. Um, I think – but uniquely, because of the way the film is, like people are very creeped out by it because there's so much detail about how this woman was found, how you know how her her family sort of abandoned her, which is not to give too much away because it happened so early on. But th- this woman, you build up this mythology that honestly works very well, in my opinion, in Talking Head because it's like you go into such detail about the origins and the mythology of who this woman was. And then all of a sudden she has – she has these sort of unexplained powers, and it just gets, it gets very creepy very quickly. So,
1: Well, I think um, – I, you know, I, I don't know if there was fear early on. Uh, I don't know if you had any, Dan. I don't know if Peter did. Or I don't know if anyone else involved did about the talking heads because I, obviously there's always the concern that it's going to be boring, right? You have a bunch it, of people telling instead of showing. I mean that's not what you want to do in a movie obviously. So I – and you probably heard me say this on set. I always viewed it as – as these people if you if if you can get the performance out of them which i hopefully was able to get and i think i did uh because i thought they were great not because of me mostly because of them uh if you're able it, it, they became campfire ghost stories right think and i always kind of just felt as though it created the right atmosphere for the scares when you're around a campfire at night and people are telling ghost stories all of a sudden things that normally wouldn't Scary, a little twig snapping in the woods, or what? You're you're super like charged at that point. Once once you're passing around those ghost stories, so the littlest thing you're primed. The littlest thing kind of set you off. So I felt always felt as though if if I could kind of create, if I can have these people telling these ghost stories, they are well primed. The people watching are going to be well primed for when there are you know say like more jump scare moments or even just mildly scary moments because you've created the right atmosphere for it.
0: Yeah, no, totally. Um, Well, transitioning a little bit, obviously, so Atticus is out on iTunes right now, uh, Mm. came out January 9th and it'll be on, on video on demand and also on Blu-ray and a few other platforms on January 20th. So we will include links to all of those things um, as well as the trailer, which is very cool. Um, And, uh, and then finally, you know, uh, I want to talk about Sea of Trees a little bit because I actually don't know too much about it. Um, I remember you got a phone call while we were editing Atticus and you were like, I think you are very excited because I think it, it got the green light and, uh, and that was exciting, but, um, it has a pretty impressive cast. Um, Matthew McConaughey is in it, uh, yep. Naomi Watts and Ken Watanabe, uh, That's right. is it, um, what's, uh, what's that movie and, and, uh, how did that come about?
1: so that is it's, it's going to be directed well it is directed by Gus Van Sant we're in post on it right now and the goal is for it to come out as far as I know it's, it should be coming out in 2015 this year uh, so how to it come about so I, I wrote the script I kind of it was weird I, I had had some success in the past with Buried in ATM and some other jobs that I had done that didn't necessarily get produced but I kind of found myself being stuck in a, in a particular box, no pun intended. And, you know, I, I needed to break out of that, that, that place, you know, just being pigeonholed as the guy that writes these small contained little movies. And, and so I, I just made the kind con- of thrillers on top of it, which is kind of in, more in my wheelhouse, but I, I wanted, wanted to do something different. So I kind of purposely set out to do, do something totally different. And I learned of that forest, the, the sea of trees, Aoki Kahara, which is second to the to the Golden Gate Bridge. It is the, the place where the highest number of suicides occur
2: per oh, year. Oh, right. Yeah, I've heard of this place. Yeah, you're, you're, a, really you're a very sports. dark soul. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I mean, that's the thing is that I I didn't want to do that. That was kind of my first inclination to be like, well, that'd be a great. Place to make a horror movie. You have people that travel from all around the world to go kill themselves at this place for some weird reason. And the Japanese, they think it's you know they think it's a haunted forest. They have a whole bunch of they have their own mythology around it. Apparently, apparently, compasses don't work there. A matter of fact, a matter of fact, I ancient I aliens. are so you gonna yes, say there's an ancient yes. I want to say they mentioned it in an ancient aliens episode. Don't again. Don't quote me on that either. Oh,
2: so good. It's, like it's, it's, <laughs>
0: it's like one of the great things where it's like it's like the pyramids. This place, this place you've never heard of. How are they connected? Well this guy thinks this.
1: Yeah. I think that I wanna say there was because I have this weird vague memory of, of seeing it and be like, what the fuck? Because I'm I'm over here working on this script that's gonna be a drama and hopefully something serious and Here's ancient aliens basically saying that it's to do with uh I don't know, alien right. If
0: it's on ancient aliens, like I y- mean, your
2: your your biggest fear is that some asshole like me is gonna make a found footage movie about it before you real <laughs> before your real movie is going it come I think, out. I think the new offshoot, like if they make a like, a like an offshoot of ancient aliens, it's going to be anything that confirms or denies uh how long or how old human beings are. So there's <laughs> there's all this I, you don't hear it like Uh, uh, coming up in, like, the New York Times or anything, but there's all these, like, archaeologists that are having these um, arguments right now about, like, uh, this artifact was from 30,000 years ago. Like, no, no, that that thing is from, like, 2 million years ago or something like that. The newest one, which really, like, I get excited about, is that someone um, found some kind of tissue or something that you could carbon date on what they thought is a uh, triceratops horn, and they carbon dated it to 30,000 years ago. Oh, my God. Which, if that were true, I mean, they're trying to say it's true. That would upend, like, that Everything. would make creationists, like, sort of right. <laughs> and, like, that gets me so excited because I would love to have that debate. I would love to see that be a national debate. Um, but I think that's, like, the next thing is just, like, well, we, we found this, this thing in molten rock. And it, that we dated that to, like, two million years ago. And there's, like, there's a little mechanism in there. And you see that stuff uh, on the internet and you're like, is that real? Like, I don't know what, what, but you, I'm hearing more and more of it, which is like kind of crazy. But anyway, back to, sorry.
0: (laughs) So the forest, (laughs) forest. you had this amazing forest, this amazing setting. You're like, I hope no
1: one ruins this. (laughs) Yeah. Well, not just that. It was more, I, I, I didn't, I wanted to do something different. So I said, all right, well, what could be a drama that takes place here? And so what came of that was a story about, an American man who who's lost his wife. And so he travels to Japan to go end his life in this forest. And while he's there, he ends up encountering a Japanese man that's there for the same reason. But the Japanese man has been there for about a day or so and cha- has since changed his mind. He's already slit his wrists and he's bleeding and uh, he wants, he's just, but he can't find his way out of the forest because that's the other thing about this place is that it's incredibly disorienting. So McConaughey's character essentially at first and very begrudgingly it's just kind of like well i'll put aside my plans uh for lack of a better word and and i'll help you at least find the trail to get out of here and so in the course of doing that they can't find the trail and then as that you know day turns to night and now it's the two of them essentially in this survival story over over the course of the night and uh you know it's through that process it's through that that bonding process that that you know hope is hope is restored
0: yeah, That's well, cool. It obviously seems a lot of room for obviously great character development, and 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 you know you you have a bunch of great actors in that film. So um, just to be a part of the McConaissance, which is a great yes. term, <laughs> the, the McConaughey rena- uh, Renaissance uh, is McConaissance. Uh, yeah. Well, what was it like to be on? I mean, were you on set for? Where,
1: where did that shoot? Yeah, I was. I'm a I'm a producer on on it as well. Um, it's awesome. It, it shot up in Massachusetts. The majority of it shot a little bit in Japan, but uh, we pretty much doubled uh, different forests in Massachusetts for uh, for the forest in Japan, which was great for me because, again, being in Rhode Island, it only took me like forty minutes, if that, sometimes to get to set. and yeah, no, I was, was going to say
0: more. that's actually shockingly convenient. Yeah, it is. Where, like normally, like that seems really randomly convenient that it would actually be in Rhode Island. Yeah, uh, I mean in, in Massachusetts. But um, but uh, that's awesome. So when's that going to come out? You think like September or towards the end of the year?
1: I'm not, I, I'm honestly not sure. I mean, we're pretty far along uh, with the edit. We just did the score uh, about a week and a half ago. And, you know, it's just tough to say. I think it's a matter of where they want to launch it. You know, what makes the most sense uh, in, in terms of uh, getting the most exposure for its launch. I don't know if that means Cannes. I don't know if it means Toronto or Venice. or. But I would imagine that would be the plan. I would think that the idea would be for um, – and the producers on it, like the primary producers on it are Gil Netter uh, who did uh, Life of Pi and The Blind Side and uh, Ken Kao, who's a kind of new and up-and-coming producer financier. Uh, so uh, it's kind of more their call than mine, what, where the launch is. But, um, so I'm, I'm actually just as curious as you are. That's cool,
0: though. It seems as though – I mean it's obviously a, a bigger picture with um, – Obviously, you know, a great cast and a very well-known filmmaker. So, I mean, do you feel like, you know, the first 10 years, to sort of wrap up, do you feel like the first, like, 10 years of your uh, of your filmmaking life has sort of transitioned a little bit? You know, because obviously you've directed your first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, like, what's what's next for you?
1: For me, I mean, as far as what else do I have going on that's tangible or... Well, sort of like you know, obviously after the first ten
0: years of, of having a great success with with Buried, and then doing some other stuff, and then and then directing this first movie, and then having you know a, a film that you've written. I mean, obviously showing up on the uh, Screenwriters to Watch list being the pinnacle of this, but no. But now, like, uh, what do you think the
1: next ten years? You know, like it's the sky's the limit, right? Like, what's what, that's, what? do you? That's the goal. Yeah, I mean, look, I I, I didn't get into this to just to kind of just um, I don't know play triple a ball you know i i came to play in the majors i came to play on the all-star team uh and i came i'll just kill the metaphor and i came to win the world <laughs> World series you know so it's like i i that's kind of the goal i mean it's i think part of what if that happens what will help it happen is it's what i said to you earlier it's just kind of that the work ethic it's i i have you know that if this if this did work out if this did say when i was 20 and I was one of those people where an overnight success really was an overnight success. Uh, I don't know. I have no idea how far I could have actually gotten uh, with it. I might have had one break and that might have been it. But I, those 10 years, as much as they were a grind and they sucked uh, in a lot of ways, I, I learned my craft. You know, I got better at what I do for a living now. And so now that I'm here, not only just does just maturity help in some ways, but it. You know, I, I feel like I feel like I'm at a place where I have what I need. You know, I, I put in the time uh, to, to to figure out what I need to do and what I essentially need to be to be successful doing this. So, you know, so that and as far as, you know, if you wanted tangible examples, other things I'm doing, I mean, I, I have, I'm doing Mayflower uh, series, Mayflower limited series for FX that I'm writing and producing. Uh, and I also have a project for... Uh, for uh, Warner Brothers, that Daniel Espinosa is directing and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is producing and maybe starring in. We'll see if he decides to do it or not. There you go. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so like, I mean, it's, it's it's it's. I I mean, it's. I, I feel like I'm. You know, I'm getting the opportunities that I wanted. You know, again, the bigger opportunities. The you know being thought of more than just doing contained movies, and and that was. It, this is largely to do with taking. The somewhat not risky step because of the worst case scenarios. I could have written Sea of Trees and nothing could have happened. Uh, but you know, it, the, this, these opportunities are largely as a result of taking that risk. Well, it seems the lesson
0: is um, <laughs> not like be be thankful you you uh, weren't as successful early on because it really made you hone your craft. But it's like not be thankful that you had failures early on. But I guess just. Being able to continuously develop and take stock and and just you know it's a marathon. I mean it's a huge cliche, but it's it's a marathon not a sprint, and you just got to keep doing it. You know, so yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, look, had that guy not eviscerated me when <laughs> as, as a critic, essentially, when he said, "Look, I couldn't get first through the past, past the first thirty minutes of your movie," you know, I could have just kept going along making movies that really weren't that good, and and I would have kind of just stayed in the, in the small circle of. Whatever tiny little festivals and people would have continued to pat me on the head and say "good job," and but that could have very well been the extent of it because, you know, but you know, getting fully, truly going full circle now, you know, because maybe that bluntness early on uh, was that necessary, you know, to just kind of to make me realize, no, it wasn't good, and I do need to work harder.
0: Right, like if you know, you needed that like sports movie. You know, the coach is like, it's like "Chris, you're you're changing too many plays in the huddle. Like, yeah. you're, <laughs> you're like you, you have so much talent, kid, but you know, you just can't keep on like this. We're just not going to win." <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I guess the lesson is just even if your friends, if your friends have wrote a song or have have written something or they painted something, just just be a dick about it.
1: Just That's tear, the lesson. Just tear it, it, just apart. Tear it apart because. Yes you're doing them a favor is i guess what we're saying
2: <laughs> yeah that's pretty great
0: well thanks for coming on i i really appreciate it obviously we'll we'll pump out the uh the the atticus love but um no it's been fun to talk about this different stuff
1: yeah same here guys thanks thanks for having me yeah yeah cool all right thanks chris we'll talk soon all right guys take
0: care